Uh, we're going to be continuing our, and closing our series, uh, Living Like an Exile. We're going through the book of First Peter. So we're going to be closing out by going through chapter 5. Uh, today's sermon title, as you're turning there, is Faithful Shepherds and Sheep. And so you're going to see as we walk through this uh, in First Peter, uh, the letter that Peter is dictating and having written to the church that he's writing to. Um, he's encouraging the leaders of the church at the end of this book or the end of this letter to be uh, faithful to what God has put on their hearts with humility and diligence. But also, I, I'm going to put this out there because I, I always say this, we don't talk about it enough, anticipating heavenly rewards. It's not, you know, the Lord doesn't just do stuff where it's like, you should just do it because you love Jesus. There are rewards involved. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. Does anybody do like Winn-Dixie rewards or like <laughs> McDonald's points or whatever you do? There's some heavenly rewards in this. So the Lord said it. I'm just, I'm following along. Um, it's also the Lord is going to encourage us to entrust um, our, our plan and our purpose to the leadership, the spiritual leadership that God's put over us. But we should do it by casting our worries on him and being humble before him. So uh, as we walk through this, you're going to see some final words to leaders, but you're also going to see some final words to the, to the congregation. As we're walking through this, even if you're not a leader, and you're listening to this and you go, well, that doesn't apply to me. It's still very important for you to know what kind of standard God demands for his church. So that is very much what it applies to me, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Craig, but also the elders or maybe anybody else that's in a spiritual uh, leadership position throughout the church. Now you know what the standard is and also too, what the standard God has called all of us to do if we're ever in a position to spiritually lead somebody else. And so uh, we wanna know what standards we can judge our leaders by, the word, we want to be faithful to the word that the Lord has given to us, but we also want to live that out if, in fact, we are raised and prepared for that one day. And it starts with this one word that's been coming up throughout this uh, entire book. It is humility. The leaders are to carry on in humility, and the people that follow are to be carrying on with humility. So if you can, join me in verse 1, and you can see what the setup is. Uh, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And so what Peter is doing here is he's writing a letter to a church um, that might not be steeped in the culture that he's already been steeped in. He is a Jewish man that is coming out of, you know, being a Jew and following the Jewish law. Before that, they would follow the laws of Exodus where you would respect your elders. You would follow the elders. And that's something that was set up with uh, Moses early on. You can go back to Exodus 3 and 19. Um, that they could see. But the word elder doesn't actually tell us much other than it's an older and more experienced gentleman. That doesn't really define it for us. So in the Jewish culture, they might have picked up on some of the nuances. Peter's going to flesh out those nuances right here. I want you to see this word, this word shepherd. We can see that word today and go, I kind of think I know what a shepherd does. But unless you've ever been to the Middle East and seen how a shepherd conducts himself, it's really not part of our day-to-day -day life. I, I want to put the slide up on the screen as what he's laying out when he says the word shepherd. A shepherd is to protect, protectively watch over the flock. They are to feed them, care for the sick, 
This is always our favorite one. Correct the unruly sheep. Even better one, go collect the wandering sheep. There's that nine, you know, the one that leaves the 99, right? And then do all of this with gentleness and compassion so they would trust his heart and his voice. One of the most incredible things I ever saw in the Middle East when I got a chance to go over there is a shepherd actually talked to his sheep. And the way that he talked to them was very gentle. It was very still. He, he didn't raise his voice because he didn't want to have to raise his voice. But the sheep had spent so much time with him because he had done all these other things first. He had already protected them, so they had seen that. And they had already been fed by them and cared for him when they were sick. And he had been gently correcting them, and he collected them when they wandered. But look how he did. He said, with all gentleness and compassion, so they would trust his heart and his voice. The shepherd came out, and he was like naming the sheep. It was kind of incredible. They were up on a hillside, and he was naming them. And then one by one, they came down. But he didn't yell. With like almost a small voice, he said, Hey, you know, Henry, hey, Frank. And then they just bup, 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 came around and over him. Why? Because they had already learned to trust him through that process. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that we might not have that in a day-to-day life, unless you're in like an agrarian agricultural world where 4-H club where you raise animals. Uh, this is something that was part of their day-to-day. So when he is talking to a pastor or to a shepherd, he's saying these are the qualities that your leader should have when they are put in a spiritual oversight position over you. So that's what you should come to expect, all of this. In fact, the word even pastor comes from pasture, you know, for the shepherd that was out there watching the sheep grazing. Uh, Just to give you like a, a really pretty picture that we can paint, think of David sitting and watching over the sheep probably gently playing a a lyre or a harp and singing and the sheep and like, oh, I love David. Because he's so good to me. When that lion came and tried to attack us, he beat it with a club to death. And that was so great because we just kept eating grass and everything was fine. But that's how the pastor should be operating. They should be protecting the flock and feeding the flock, but doing it with gentleness and compassion. And so that's why he's explaining it to this group. But it's very explanatory to us. What we should expect from our leaders in this church is that is how we treat you spiritually. Spiritually, you should come to expect all these things, but you should also come to trust these things. All of those things on those lists don't really mean like a hill of beans if you don't trust them. You have to trust that the Lord has empowered and anointed and appointed the people in your life to be this person over you, to guide you through whatever you're going through because the Lord has already prepared them to be that shepherd because why? He's our shepherd. We can never shepherd you great unless we're being shepherded. And who's a greater shepherd than Jesus? When you look at all of these qualities that are on the screen, you can see that in Jesus Christ. And so just as Paul said to Timothy, as you're chasing me, Timothy, you know, as I'm chasing God, that should be the path. You should be chasing the leaders of this church as they're growing closer and closer with the Lord, becoming more and more like this every day. And so that is the expectation. But as we're talking about spiritual leadership and spiritual oversight, what are we talking about? We're talking about a leader that is filled with the spirit of the Lord. We're talking about a leader that knows the heart of the Lord and shares the heart of the Lord. Now, he's going to lay out this responsibility and he's gonna put a pin in it. If you go back and look at verse uh, two, look how he lays lays it out. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Now that word watching over them actually in some translation is when you are the, have the oversight or you're the overseer. And so he's putting it in a very strong way. He's, it's almost like you are responsible for. When Pastor Craig and I 
and Pastor Ryan come together and we talk about the things that are happening to, uh, to you guys individually or happening to us as a group, we have this on our mind. We are responsible for God's flock. So if you are in this room and you are a leader, you lead a small group or you're part of a Bible study or go into kids ministry and teach, whatever you do, understand that one day the Lord is going to ask you, how did you treat the flock that I handed you? How, how did you do with my people that I gave you temporary stewardship over? And so that's what we're doing. And so we have to be closely connected and we have to be closely, uh, closely aware of everything that's going on with our flock. The, this leads to this. This next slide I want you to see is the job of the overseer. If we are not in this particular position, then uh, to, to operate in this way, then we will not be doing our job. Look what it says. Never serve under compulsion. And that's what he says here in the scripture, right? Not because you must, but because you are willing. And so what he's saying is there, you can never be guilted into serving. A leader cannot just be a leader because we look at him and go, oh, he's so handsome. Send that guy up there. No, no, or maybe he's a really good leader. Maybe he, he's a CEO of a company and he's thriving over here. That doesn't mean he's qualified to step into a leadership role just because he's had success in the world. It has to be an anointing and appointing by God and the serving must be called by God. I'm gonna give you a little case in point why this is so important. The reason why, have you ever read uh, Jacob and Esau's story? And it just seems so bizarre, especially if you're not a fan of lentils. I'm a fan of lentils. Uh, but you're like, Esau was like selling his birthright, right, for a bowl of lentils. Really what he was being is he was being cavalier with the calling that God had put on his life. Leaders must step into the role when God has called them. You don't want a leader who doesn't want to step in the role even though that God's called them. And so there's two different sides of this. You can't guilt a person into it. They have to be the kind of person that hears from God and then follows God. Esau did not want to step in that role. He'd rather go hunting. For some of you guys in Sebastian, he'd rather go fishing than hear and do what God has laid out for him. But Jacob was ready to do that. But Jacob, God didn't really need Jacob's help. Now let me give you like the cross-examination of that. Isaiah, I don't know if you remember Isaiah's story. God called and what did Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord send me. I'm ready, right? Here I am, Lord, send me. It didn't matter if he was qualified in his heart. It didn't matter, uh, you know, if he felt like he had the proper training or if he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. No, what it was is that he heard from the Lord, the anointing was on him, and he stepped into that appointment. That is the leader. So it can't be under compulsion. Next one can be not for personal gain or for money. As a person who grew up in the 80s, that sounds funny, doesn't it? When you read it, how blank that is. Right, all the televangelists that we saw flying around in their $86 million planes and everything like this. What does it say right here? Not for personal gain or for money. In fact, some of the translation that comes through on this, it says uh, pursuing dishonest gain. Now, the Bible does say you need to pay the worker his day's wages. So when you support uh, the leadership that is here uh, through your tithes and offering, that is not a dishonest gain. Like Pastor Craig isn't gonna get in his Lamborghini and go home. I don't even know if I could get out of a Lamborghini. Have you ever seen Lamborghinis? If you, you have to like slide in there like a shoehorn to get in. Uh, we, we're not going to do that, but we, we do need to have a, a working wage to raise a family or to, or to carry on, but that's not dishonest gain. The focus needs to be on serving, not gaining. So the servants need to, uh, the servant leaders, I should say, should be focused on the servanthood, not the gaining. And we should labor uh, for what God wants to build up, not to what God wants to destroy. 
Just think about that. If you have a leader that's laboring for one day what God is going to destroy, you don't have a great spiritual leader. But if you have a, a leader that is fighting tooth and nail for what God is putting into the kingdom, serving alongside the Lord, then that's the leader that you want to follow because he's building something that will remain forever. Uh, the third point is they are to not be domineering. They are not to be domineering. This is kind of echoed when we were talking about uh, marriage. When we were talking about marriage, the husband doesn't need to remind the wife to be godly. The, the wife doesn't need to really remind the husband to be godly. They should be godly examples to each other. It's not a domineering position. What it says right here is he's actually saying your job is to teach and support and to lead. Uh, you're not to take up the role of the Holy Spirit. That's a very powerful thing because, you know, somebody could come and sit with me and we have one session of counseling and go, do this, and they do the opposite. And then the second session, I said, do this, and they do the opposite. Third one, now I'm really just going to wring their neck and be like, why are we doing this every week? But that's not my job. My job is not to domineer. My job is to point them to the Holy Spirit. And that is a job of everybody in kind of some kind of spiritual leadership. Men that are here that are oversee a household, that you are the high priest of the house, you are to lead the house towards the Holy Spirit not in spite of the Holy Spirit. You don't understand what I'm saying? You're not supposed to demand. You're supposed to point and live. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Why? Because he was already worshiping the Lord. And everybody wanted to follow suit. And I would say, as, if you read Joshua's life, you would, I want to follow that guy. But all of his success came, why? Because he was filled with the Spirit before the Lord. We saw the, the Jesus Revolution uh, movie uh, over the summer, right? And that was really fun. Some of you guys really surprised me with what you had in your closet and you dressed up for that. Um, I was really impressed. Um, what was really amazing that came out of that movie and, and some of the stuff that the inside of that history is that, you know, Chuck Smith and some of those leaders saw these, these, these group of people that were hungry for the word, but what were they really missing? Discipleship. And that's where Chuck Smith and the leaders came in. They were hungry for the word. They wanted to live for Jesus Christ. Obviously they were coming out of a lifestyle that wasn't you know, congruent with the Lord, but once they locked into the Lord, now what? Well, they needed spiritual oversight. That was good discipleship. At no point during that movie did you feel that there was a domineering, compulsive spirit saying, you hippies, cut your hair and do this. Actually, those are the people that left the church, right? Remember in the movie? The people that didn't like that left the church, and the people that wanted to remain and disciple stayed. Now, I don't know if you remember, I had to look this up. I didn't know that this was really a big thing. There was something called the discipleship movement uh, in the 70s and 80s, in Fort Lauderdale. And it came around the same time, around the 60s and 70s it was birthed, but it became huge in Fort Lauderdale. There was a discipleship movement it was the opposite. They got so entrenched, these leaders, in discipling people, they were domineering, they were telling people when they could and couldn't get married. They were telling who they could, no, you, she's not right for you, he's not right for you. They said, oh, vacation, that's not gonna work for us. We, you can't take the summer off. That's domineering. And that's something that the, that the Spirit is not uh, setting it up. We are not trying to figure out, like as we walk through this, um, what is our relationship with our leader and what is our relationship with the Holy Spirit? No, we should remember, as Paul said, as I'm following the Holy Spirit, Timothy, follow me. As I'm chasing down the Lord, chase me down. If you don't see something that's congruent with the word, you need to call it out, but it needs to be in line with this scripture. And look at the last one to be an example, to be an example. And that's really where it comes down to. It says, look at this, not lording over those who entrust you, but being examples to the flock. Why? Because who's your example? Look at the next verse. And when the chief shepherd appears, there's going to be a report card given, right? Remember I said about McDonald's points? Look at the next part. 
you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There is a heavy burden placed on leaders because we are walking in the legacy and the teaching style of Jesus Christ. And when I say teaching style, it's by life, not just what we say from the pulpit. We need to be living out the scripture. In fact, the gospel is not even something that we always say. It's something that we are and who, what we do, right? Uh, Pastor Craig always says that comment, you know, where, you know, sometimes preach the gospel and sometimes use words. You should be living out that gospel by your life. People should look at you and go, yeah, Joey is really ridiculously guilty of being a Christian. That's how it should be. Like if, if I were to go on trial, I should be found guilty of being called a Christian. Why? Because that is the example. Now I understand what I just said about the last group. Remember that discipleship? There is also room for examples to be bad examples. Have we seen pastors fall? Have we seen pastors make mistakes? That is still an example to us. Obviously not the example that Peter is aiming for, but when we see that, we should take a note of that and go, that's not the type of leader that we want. That's not the type of leader that we want to look for. And so we are going to be called, if you are in this room and you are called into leadership, you are going to be called to be an example whether you intend to or not. Because Jesus Christ is going to be on display in your life. But how does this all come? By maturity. And how does maturity come? By saying no to the enemy and yes to the Lord all the time. Now, will you be perfect at it? No. But should you be right standing before the Lord and righteous before your congregation? Yes. Why? Because our Savior was this way. Did Jesus Christ have an opportunity to be selfish? Every day. Did he choose to follow his Lord and say, or to, to his Father God? Yes, absolutely. And he did nothing out of personal gain, did he? Nor did he dominate over his disciples nor did he lord anything over them. The only thing he was was an example, and they ran to follow him. They ran to follow him. Why? Because they called him a shepherd. Think about this. Everything that Christ did, he did out of love for the Father, and he did out of love for those he was called to serve. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. So that's the pace that has been set by our chief shepherd, by Jesus Christ. You see that word, chief shepherd. Now we understand the, the uh, measurement by which leaders are, are measured, right? Jesus Christ. How's your pastor doing? Jesus Christ. Don't tell me after service. Give me, give me a week before you tell me how I'm doing versus Jesus Christ. But as you reach that standard, what is the application? How amazing will this be one day where Jesus Christ shows up and awards you the crown of glory? I mean, what, and I mean, I don't even know if I'll be able to even look at Jesus. I don't even know if I'll be able to see through the tears immediately when Jesus shows up. I'll probably just try and touch his feet. I don't know, maybe not touch his feet, but here he is going to reward you for the work that you have done with him. Why? Because Christ is here every day doing the work with you. So he knows how to apply that. So I just asked you this question, and this is something I wrote down in my Devo time this week, crown in glory. Am I confident I will receive it? Are you confident that you will receive it? It's a very heavy standard, but understand that, that it's the role that God has called you to. God has called you to lead and lead well and lead like a shepherd. Remember all those stats that we put up on the screen? But we have to, you have been entrusted with some kind of leadership. Husbands, if you're in the room, you've been entrusted with leadership. Parents, you've been entrusted with some kind of leadership. Maybe at your work, maybe uh, in your households, maybe in your neighborhood. There's some kind of leadership role, some spiritual oversight where you are meant to lead the people that you are in front of and now you know which by what standard the Lord is judging. And one day you will receive that crown of glory. Now, this alone should drive our motivation because you know why? We're obliged for God. We're obliged to him because he did it himself for us. I want you to see 
what is next for the people that are not in leadership. Verse five. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Amen. Yes. And all of you clothe. I want to just put a little caveat on that word. That word clothe is closer to gird. Gird. You've heard that word before, right? Gird yourselves with humility toward one another because why? God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse six says, humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You know, uh, this might seem like a funky verse for us and you're like, so everybody just has to submit to old guys at our church? That's just how that goes? No, actually it's first submission to the Lord because who, who are you submitting to? God opposes the proud. Who are you submitting to first? God. And then when you are submitted and in right place and in right standing with the Lord, now it's more easy for you to fall into, God, who do you have for me? Who do you have to put over me? I trust you to put the right person over me. And even if they're not perfect, I trust the Christ in them to become that person or to lead me in the way that they are called to do. You know, Moses wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect, but the God that was leading them was. And so the people were ready to follow them at all times. And that's why Peter already set that pace. If you look at those first four verses for the leaders, now he's saying, now that you know what a good leader is, you should, want, you should run to the calling of that if God is putting this great person over you because God is great in them, then put on the humility. Now that word gird, I just want to touch back to it one more time. That's the same word that Jesus was used when he girded up his, his outfit when he washed the disciples' feet. He was girded up in the same way in humility because why? He was called to serve. Did our Lord and Master and King serve and did he serve well? 100%. So God is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He has served as a leader and he has served as a servant. He served as a leader over us and he has served as a servant under the Lord. And so what the Lord is saying here is you need to be ready to surrender in your discipleship under leadership because this is the very foundation of biblical hierarchy in this world. There has to be one voice. I, I know this is gonna sound funny, but there's no such thing as two popes in Rome, right? How funky would that be? Right, two guys trying to figure, no, no, there's only one God and there's one voice. And so sometimes he's gonna call us into a position where there is one voice over us and we should be ready to cooperate with that. Paul said some very similar things in 1 Thessalonians. Look on the screen. It says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work and live in peace with each other. I don't know if you use the word admonish in your daily life. That would be really, I need you to sit there while I admonish you. It doesn't hit quite as much as this. I need you to sit still while I reprimand you. That's really the word. But what if you trust the heart of the shepherd, that they're going to lead you on a, you know, a path that is straight before the Lord, that they're going to pull you out of the darkness and into the light, you have to ask yourself, do I respect the role of the leader that God has called over me? And so what he's saying this is, are you bringing humility to your servanthood? Are you bringing the humility that God is calling? Look at, back at that verse uh, there. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. When he says clothe, he's saying, you have to have a decision. Will I put on humility today? When, when I'm stepping into this place where I'm learning about the Lord and I have a spiritual oversight over me, am I ready to put on the decision of humility? Because why? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor or in other translation, grace to the humble. Which means he shows grace from the leader and then grace to you. Are you perfect? Is any church perfect? 
Please tell me where it is so I can't go and wreck it. I don't want to wreck it because I'm a person of grace. I'm in a person that is not perfect and moving in grace. And so if there's any kind of grace that's coming to me, I need to be able to extend that to the people that are under me. But the people under should also be extending grace up. Why? Because we're all clothed in humility together. All we're doing is listening to the Lord and stepping into the roles. And then when everything works, everything works. If you look at a clock or if you look at, you know, I, we used to have a, uh, what do you call that? Like, not a cuckoo clock, but one of those like funky clocks where the bird comes out, but we opened up and you see all the clockwork in there. If one of those cogs is like, I don't want to do this, does the clock work? No, we have division inside of the clock. And so that's what the Lord is saying. He's like, your humility, I am setting up to save you from further crisis. There's a lack of humility in the world. How's that working out for everybody? Just turn on the news. How many times do you see the next corruption, the next murder, the next car accident? You know, whatever you just want to go through the news, there's not always a place of perfect humility towards each other, both leader and servant. And so that's what the Lord is saying. Your greatest need is for you to say this. You know, pride says exalt me. Humility says I need to exalt God and whatever he's called me to. Because look at verse six. He's going to say it one more time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he, that he may lift you up. Don't worry about where man is going. Worry about where God is going. You know, there's a time, and you just look through the whole Bible. How long did David have to wait before God raised him up? Imagine if he tried to raise himself up by his own hand, what mess Israel would be in. Joseph, Daniel. In due time, the Lord, look at what it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Really, we should say in his time. In his time. At the right time. To be raised up. Every single one of these people that I just mentioned, Joseph, Daniel, David, all of their lives are an example of what it means to follow God and follow God well, right? Now, this is the setup of the humility before the leaders and the humility before the congregation. Now, look what is this. That's great. So how do we do that? How do we clothe ourselves in humility? Especially when I might not be ready to put myself and all of my problems and all of my worries inside of somebody else's hands who also might be imperfect. Look at the next verse. Verse seven, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What God is saying inside of this is like, yes, I get it. We're an imperfect church filled with imperfect people and the leaders are imperfect, but I'm calling you to trust them. But before that, cast your cares on me. Cast your cares on me. Don't put all of your faith in the man. Put your faith in the God that is over this church so that he can shepherd the people well. You can respond to that. You know, I'm gonna put this slide up. I just think it says it best. My obedience is a weapon against my anxiety. My anxiety can get, catch up with my fear and my imagination, right? When my fear and my imagination start hanging out, you know what I sound like? A really, really weird Christian, Right? And so all of a sudden, subtle differences happen. I'm not walking in peace. I'm not walking in faith. I'm going, but what if? But what? But this guy, I, he, he blew it over here. And I've seen him make mistakes. But the Lord says, cast all your anxiety because he cares for you. And I just want to walk through this verse just because I think it's, there's some subtleties in there that we need to pull out. The word anxiety is more closely related to a word like this, choking anguish. So have you ever been in that place where you don't even, you're like paralyzed to move? You can't even move forward or backwards or left or right. But he says this, I know there's uncertainties. Your life is riddled with uncertainties. This world is that. Without the, the love and direction of Jesus Christ, it's nothing but uncertainties. Cast your cares on him. 
That's not, a, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. And he's saying this, if you're holding on to anxiety, then you're not reaching for his faith. I just put it this way. You're not reaching for God's faithfulness. You're, you're, you're hanging on to the what ifs. You're hanging on into the uh, uncertainties. You're choked out by the anguish. You know what you're saying to yourself as you look at this? I'm allowing my disbelief to rule over me. My disbelief, disbelief in what? That God might actually have inferior plans to yours. Isn't that an amazing place to be? God's timing isn't working for you. Things aren't working out. You're not very comfortable. God, I have some better plans. Would you just hear me today? Can I just walk you through my 10-step plan to make Joey awesome? At any point, has anyone ever had a better plan than the Lord? Never once. And so what he's saying is, look at this. I want you to cast all your cares. Now, I'm going to put uh, where Peter is borrowing some of this from. Psalms 55, verse 22. This is coming from David. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you in all situations, no matter the situation. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Let me translate that for you. He will never let those who are in right standing before him be shaken. Not perfect, in right standing. And so think about the confidence level you must have in God to go like this. I don't really care what my plans are. I don't really care what my fear and my faith and imagination is. I know that you have better plans. So I'm gonna take, this is the actual word cast and throw it up on you. That's actually the word cast. It's not like cast like a net. The word cast is almost like throw. It's like, have you ever not been able to reach something on a shelf so you just threw it up there and hope for the best? That's what that verse is. It's saying this. I, I know that anything that I have, you supersede it. So even if the doctor says something or the finances say something or the relationship is bad, I know that you have a superior plan. So you supersede it in the supernatural. I throw it up to you. Is that not the best way to pray? Cast all your cares. Throw it up to the Lord. Why? Because you know what you're doing? You're resting in God's power. At this point, you're going, I have anxiety, so be it. I cast my anxiety up to you. It doesn't really make sense. I rest in you. I don't know what you're going to do. I just know you're going to do it. I don't need to know because in my limited, finite experience, I don't know everything you do. I ran up against the Red Sea. I didn't know you were going to split it. The guy was blind. I didn't know you were going to spit in the ground and rub it on his eyes. I don't know what you're going to do, God, but I know you're going to do it. And I trust you because I trust your heart. And that's what he's saying. Think about this. There is a burden you, there is no burden that you can give God that he cannot take. Name one burden. You have to ask yourself as you move through these verses, is your God unlimited in his power or is he not? Who is the God that you are serving? I love this because uh, when, when Rachel and I were talking about the, the hymn night, I started diving into all this uh, hymnal history. And I came across this one. It's called, Lord, it belongs to my care. This is the verse I want to put on the screen from that hymnal. Lord, it belongs not to my care, whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share. And this thy grace must give. I want you to sit there and hang on that for a second. My entire care belongs to the Lord. End of story. And so when I read something like that, I, I'm not going to try to care for myself in a way that I think is better than the, what the Lord can do it. I'm just going to rest in the Lord. Is it not Jesus that said, come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So what this verse and what this uh, passage is saying, wherever you are in your calling, surrender it to the Lord. Cast all your cares and your consequences back to the Lord and just rest. And that is really important for the next verse because I want you to hear how, how important a clear mind is. Verse eight. 
be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now that word, be sober-minded, can be applied to drinking. Like if somebody was drunk, be, you need to be sober-minded. So that can apply there. There's a cloudy mind there. But look at the verse before it. He's talking about anxiety. Now he moves that in the next, be alert and sober-minded. Don't let anxiety cloud what the Lord is calling to you. In fact, the calling is this. Cast your cares and your anxieties on the Lord. Now be alert and sober-minded. What he's saying is this is how you should pray. This is how you should move forward in your thing. Tell the Lord. Immediately tell the Lord, Lord, I'm having a worse day. I'm not being a good Christian. I'm riddled with anxiety. I don't want to be. I don't know how not to be, but I'm going to rest in you. I don't know how you're going to fix it. I know you're going to do it. And then I watch for what the Lord is going to do next. Because if I go right back into it, sometimes we, I guess the word is half pray, right? Lord, I have this problem. And then I just go about my business. And then I ignore it. Maybe God will answer it. Maybe not. Maybe I'll win the lottery. Maybe I won't. No, the Lord doesn't work that way. He says, be alert and sober-minded. Why? Because the enemy is going to come right behind your prayer life and do what? Prowl and roar like a lion. I want you to hear what he's saying. He's going to try to counterfeit the power of the Lord. Who is the lion of Judah? That's it. There is no other lion. There is no other lion that can roar like him. There is no other lion that has control. There is no other lion that is out in the world. That is a counterfeit power. So the, the, the enemy's gonna come to you in your prayer life and rattle you. He's preparing the people. like, this is inevitable. Things are gonna happen. You're gonna get shaken. You're not gonna come out of this unscathed. You know, uh, when I was learning in martial arts about knife fighting, the one thing that I always found fascinating, because we used to fight with markers and see if we could disarm each other just to see who could get there faster, there was not one knife fighter that didn't come out with, with marker on them. And this is what the sensei said in the very beginning. Every single, it's marker, so we were safe. Don't worry. It wasn't like, it wasn't like West Side Story. It wasn't anything like that. But it's like, so we're in the, set, we're in the dojo and we're training. And he said it this way. He's like, you're going to get cut. What they want to do is get cut less. And you want to disarm the other person. You want to take away their ability to cut you. I was like, yeah, no way, man. I saw Karate Kid. I can take this guy. So I did get the marker out of his hand. And the sensei said, now look at your arms. Nothing but marker all over my arms. The Lord is preparing you. The enemy is not going to sit idle. Spiritual warfare is real. The enemy does not want the unity in this church. The enemy doesn't want compassion in this church. The enemy doesn't want us to be in right standing with each other and, he, and like humbly serving each other. The enemy wants to break that up. But if we cast our cares and our anxieties on him and be united to the Lord and then in turn in our prayer, fully praying, going, okay, God, what do you have next for me? Then we'll be aware of the spiritual warfare that is coming to destroy because we are prepared and we're resting in his power. We're not full of anxiety in our own. God, you are the lion. You roar at that lion. Lord, you drive out that enemy. Lord, you destroy disunity. Lord, you bring harmony. That's what he's saying right here. Now, I want to bring you to the last part, what he says, the lion that's looking for someone to devour. The word closer into the, the Greek is actually consume. It's, it's, it's to say this, to overwhelm you. The enemy has come to overwhelm this church. But if we are a people that are right with the Lord and right with each other, the enemy has no place. So Peter is preparing us for that battle. Understand this battle will be coming. Now, I want you to see what he says next. What is the next important instruction? Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So he's also saying this word, resist him, is to say this, to oppose him. The word, that word enemy that is, is opponent. You have an opponent that's coming towards you. You need to oppose the opponent. 
automatically be thinking that. We are called to, if you think about it, to stand firm and dig into our faith. I don't know if you remember when we did the armor of God and we talked about the shoes, right? We talked about the cleats. They were called cleats that the enemy would come and the, and, and the soldiers would hide behind the shield. But what would they do with their feet? They would dig those cleats into the earth. The enemy would clash against it and then they would shove them off. That's how we should be. We know the enemy's attacks are coming. We're gonna dig into our faith. Think about this again. What is God's plan for our anxiety? Our anxiety is not even our own. It belongs to God. So when the enemy comes, go, okay, okay, dumb, dumb, Satan. You don't have to deal with me. You have to deal with the Lion of Judah. It's not me by myself. And so what we need to start doing, just like David did, remember we just said in Psalms 55, we need to start preaching the words of the Lord to ourselves. That is how we stand firm in our faith. We need to start preaching the word of the Lord to each other and our brothers and sisters that are following. I want you to see how this is played out in Romans chapter 10. We do this verse all the time, but I'm going to do amplified because it kind of lays it out. It so says, so faith comes from hearing. That's what's told to us. And what is heard by the preaching of the message concerning Christ. You know when I've grown the most in my faith? I've listened to great preachers all my life. And then I started preaching. That means I had to believe it to preach it. Do you believe it? So when you walk into your next situation with a friend or a coworker or, or a family member that's hurting, right? Are you ready to preach the gospel that you know? Are you ready to preach the truth you know? And you know, when you start to preach it, because you go, you know what? I've been in the same situation as you. I was lost. I was without hope. I was sick. I was not well. And the Lord came. And the Lion of Judah showed up. And his power and his presence brought something special. Can I invite you to him? You know, that's when you start to believe it is when you preach it. No one knows more than teachers because teachers teach it all the time. Are you teaching yourself and are you teaching others the good word? Church is not enough. Church is not enough. Two hours a week is not enough. Are you preaching the word? The word of the Lord has come so that we can become acquainted with the heart of the Lord you will learn more about God when you're down in the scripture preaching to yourself than you could ever do in a church service. We're just here to affirm all of that. And so what we want to do is, first, faith comes by hearing the word. That is true because it comes from God. And then living out and preaching the word. So we hear the Lord, we obey the Lord, we follow the Lord, and then we preach. And sometimes we use words. So I'm going to read for the next verse where it says here, sufferings, it says, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings and all and the great God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself isn't that amazing restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen and so something that you want to lock in that he's saying the lord is not far away from your sufferings who suffered more for the kingdom than god who suffered more rejection than God? Who suffered more unbearable things than Jesus Christ himself? No, he's really, really aware. He's actually down in your suffering with you. But what he's saying is, allow me to be the one. Cast your cares and your anxiety. Be alert to see what God's gonna do. And then let me restore you. Let me restore you. Let me be the, the spirit that empowers you. The same line of Judah. Let me come inside of you. Because I want you to see something. Look at verse 11. To him be the power the word in the original language is dominion. Now that doesn't hit as much, but have you ever watched Robin Hood? Who has taken the deer from the king's dominion? 
You know how that, like, well, the people were hungry. That is the king's dominion. That, you know, they're, they're, now we're all up in arms because somebody shot a deer out in the woods, right? You know, why? That's the same verse and same vibe that this verse is bringing. The Lord is coming in. Who has touched my children? What enemy has come into my fold and touched my flock? You have to deal with me. He's exerting his dominance over his kingdom. That's what he's saying. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He's saying all of my strength belongs to me and no one's going to take it. And everybody in this room is under my protection and my power because they are walking in my calling. There's something amazing about when God's people are in right standing with him, that righteousness and God's glory come together like this. It's when we get out of right standing with him that we start to see the glory fade from our life. God has never moved. We have. But here he's saying, if you've suffered and remained righteous with me, guess what? You're standing in the glory of the Lord and you're standing in his dominion. You didn't think I was going to pull out the English accent tonight, did you? <laughs> but that's what helps us stand firm, right? Because we're standing not in our power. We're standing in the dominion and power of the king. Now we will close with these final verses because these are really fun. Look at verse 12. So he's closing this verse or this letter with saying this, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So three times he's told us to stand firm, stand fast. What he's saying is bury your roots down in the rock that is Jesus Christ. That is how the church will stand. So he's also saying it this way, become stationary. The word is close to stationary. Become unmovable, but become unmovable in what? In the true grace of God. If you are in the true grace of God, if you are in the favor of God, you will not be moved off your mark. It doesn't matter what storm is coming in your life. I, know I always like to, to do this in prayer. When the storm came for the disciples, one time Jesus got up and said, peace be still, and the storm went away, right? And then another time he walked out on the waves. Both times were the disciples in a storm. But weren't they covered in the grace of God too? Storms are gonna come, but the grace of God is stronger. Now verse 13, he says this, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And so she is uh, saying the church. The church, most people believe that Peter is in Rome at this time. So he's saying this church who is in Babylon, he's like saying in Vegas, right, Sin City. He'd be like saying like, I'm writing you from Vegas. I'm writing you from Sin City. So he's saying the church in Rome or Sin City is chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. That's John Mark. It's not his actual biological son. It's his spiritual son. And this is where it gets really funny. Look at verse 14. This gets really, really good. Greet one another with the kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. Men that are in this room, especially those of you who haven't shaved, you heard of the commandment from the Lord, the next meet and greet. <laughs> you heard it. The Lord said, display your love for one another, men. But really what he's saying, all he's saying here is, all of what we've learned through the, book, the first you know, Peter book, right? All through this letter, it should be coming out of you. Like everything that God is putting in you, you should not hide that light. You should be able to be known by your love for God and love for each other. And so he says, when he says, greet one another with a kiss, he's saying, greet each other with a heavenly display. A heavenly display of grace and compassion. Now, I don't, whether you want to get into, you know, whatever. You ever see the guys that do this, you know, in other countries? Like if you want to do that, it's on you. Um, but look what he says to close it. Bring the display and bring the peace because we are all in Christ. Remember when we started with the prayer of this service, we said, Emmanuel, God with us. Everything that we have is because the Lord has shown us 
great humility. There's no greater humility than leaving heaven and becoming the sacrificial lamb. The Lion of Judah became your sacrificial lamb. There is no greater service. There is no greater humility. He's not domineered over us. He's not done it for personal gain. In fact, everything Jesus did was for our gain. We would have nothing if we don't have Emmanuel, if we don't have the great deliverer. We would have nothing if we were not redeemed and restored in his love. All he's calling us to do is to walk in the path that he's already shown us. So Christ didn't just come for sacrifice. He came to show us how to live. And so I just want to encourage you as we have closed this book, um, we are aliens. We are passing through. We, this isn't our home. One day we will be in heaven. And I love how Chuck Smith says it. He says, I would like to live for that day in such a way that when I die, I don't notice a difference. That's a powerful statement for me. That has really challenged me in my walk, in my Christianity, and also as a pastor. I just want to encourage you this. This is how greet each other with a kiss of love or a display of, of love for the Lord and love for each other, and then peace to all of you who are in Christ. On one day, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we had the Prince of Peace. There is no greater service. Let us carry on in that legacy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you and I praise you that you are a great God. And I might be weak, but you are not. You are strong. And I might not always be perfect and true, and I might wander, but you are the great shepherd that always collects me. Lord, I just pray that I am operating in true grace. Lord, forgive me if I have not been good in this, but Lord, your word has called me tonight, tonight I'm going to respond. Lord, forgive me my fear. Forgive me my anxiety. Forgive me of my doubt. If there is anybody in this room that is struggling with anxiety, let them cast their burden on him tonight. The commandment is there. We cannot wear God out. We cannot give him a burden that's too strong. Let us rest in the arms of our Father. There is no safer place to be than in the arms of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we just speak against the enemy. If the enemy is coming against us in any arena of our life, Lord, we are going to be alert and sober. We're going to watch for the victory that God is going to bring. Lord, I pray right now the enemy has been defeated. Christ has been raised from the dead. And that power now dwells in us. And so now we speak with that power and authority to the darkness. And we say, Lord, remove it. Remove anxiety. Remove fear. It's gone. We speak this authority because you've poured it into us. We don't speak of our own accord. We speak in unity with the Spirit. We want what you want. We want to go where you want to go. And we love what you love. And we belong to you forevermore. In Jesus' holy name, amen.